A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Call Michael now. 041-983-2000 The Michael Reed Show. Brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Wednesday morning, the 29th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Doyle sat yesterday for the first time since Thursday when law and order broke down in Dublin. The riots on Thursday evening are shocking to us. It's not something we're used to in Ireland and not something we want to get used to, see normalised or repeated. We have to make sure that what happened on Thursday were exceptional events and we need to work to ensure it never happens again. The Taoiseach hopes it never happens again but Leo Fradker praised uh, the policing response on Thursday. Gardaí re- re- regained control of the seats, streets within hours and prevented the riots from spreading beyond a confined area of the city. Yes, the Taoiseach was playing down the criticism of the Garda response and indeed calls for Commissioner Harris and Minister McEntee to resign. The political system has an important role to play at national and local level and that role continues. And it must be about much more than calling for heads to roll. I've been in regular contact with Minister McEntee and the Garda Commissioner since last Thursday. I've committed to the Taoiseach that the full weight of the state will be available in how we respond. Minister McEntee has shown how much work she can get done as Minister for Justice and she'll be doing plenty more. The Minister, Helen McEntee, told the Dáil how resources are being given to the policing of Dublin. I have consistently acknowledged that people have genuine concerns around feelings of safety in our city. There are people who don't feel safe. I acknowledge that. But I also acknowledge that Dublin is a great city and we must do more, and I have been working hard to improve safety in our city centre in particular. I've listened to local communities, I've listened to businesses, community groups, to local representatives, I've listened to women when they say they don't feel safe. And that is why we have significantly invested in additional resources into Dublin city centre. Now, while many people want more boots on the ground, what about the internet, where... Many of these fascist right-wing lunatic hoodlums organise themselves. We cannot cede to the manipulative thugs who wreaked havoc last week. And I would say this finally, social media companies, they need to do more. 
They need to be more proactive. They need to be more socially responsible. It is not good enough for social media platforms to fail to tackle hateful content. That's Ella McEntee, the Minister for Justice. Let's speak uh, to the Minister of State with uh, responsibility for business, employment and retail, Neil Ridgement, who's on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Minister. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. You called on politicians yesterday to quit the petty politicking, uh, but it, it seems inevitable at this stage that Minister McEntee is facing into a motion of no confidence. Well, there's certainly a regularity, Mike. We've had a motion no confidence in this government and various ministers, indeed, in Minister McEntee from this opposition on average once every three or four months. It's nothing new. It's political grandstanding. And I was absolutely struck that the first reaction of the leader opposition to what were horrendous riots following on from a real tragedy is to look for a political head and then use the sort of language that we heard from Louise O'Reilly on Saturday saying that the Taoiseach needs to take out uh, Minister McEntee. That's appalling. What we need... Mike, and what we are seeing is an immediate criminal justice and indeed civic response. And as the Minister, as you mentioned, responsibility for retail, I spent the last three or four days speaking with shop owners, with business owners, with workers across uh, the city centre. And I know what they want. They want people back into the city centre. They want people back into the shops, into the pubs, into the restaurants, into the theatres to take back our city and show that those thugs who operated on O'Connell Street on Thursday night, they don't speak for us and they don't get their way because what the folks want, Mike, Mm. they want heads. They want to see a minister resign. They want to see a Garda commissioner taken out and they want to see people scared to come into the city centre. So do we want the folks to win or do we want to actually believe in our city and accelerate and expedite legislation? Well, we want want control, Minister. Uh, You said yesterday the level of business that was lost on Friday will see businesses close and workers lose their jobs. Were you overstating the facts? No, Friday was Black Friday, Mike. Many um, retailers, particularly in the city centre... Well, people are being laid off and businesses are closing. Well, the message I got quite clearly from businesses is that sales were down 90% on Friday. And for certain shops in the city centre, that is 25% of their annual fall uh, take on that one day. So who who is responsible for that? uh, And why were these hoodlums allowed to run riot? And in the circumstances uh, that we're all so aware of uh, at this stage, is it not right that the minister is held accountable? First and foremost, the minister will be held accountable. The minister was before the doll yesterday. She'll be the, the doll before, before the doll again this morning, and she'll go before the Oireachtas Just Committee uh, tomorrow. That's accountability. That's democracy in action. Simply calling for a resignation doesn't solve anything, and that in itself isn't accountability, Mike. The people who are responsible, let me be very clear, the people who are responsible for smashing up stores, for looting stuff... Why were they allowed to? We know who they are. We know that they were a mixture of far-right nutters and downright blackguards who joined in uh, when they saw the opportunity. But why were they allowed to behave that way? It wasn't a matter of them being allowed to. Of course they were allowed to. Nobody stopped them. You see, this is the thing. Nobody stopped them. No, no, I'm sorry, Mike. If nobody stopped them, then we'd still have riots in the street today and we'd have people going out. They were stopped. Yes, it took three to four hours, but they were stopped that they were confined and they weren't allowed spread. We saw a guard response of immense bravery and genuine responsibility. I don't think we you, you I don't think you understand, I, Minister. Me, yeah. No, I do understand, Mike. I was on well, the streets on Thursday night myself. Yeah, well, when I say here, stop, I mean stop them from starting what they did. They started and they went on for many hours. So what we saw is 
We have had 700 protests in the last 12 months in this state, none of which have descended into the level of anarchy or violence that we saw on Thursday. We saw a far-right group mobilise far more rapidly than anyone would expect it. We know that there's a far-right element. We know that there's been tensions bumbling. We know this because we see these protesters outside our workplace and indeed outside our homes as public representatives on a daily basis. But what we saw on Thursday was an acceleration. Yes, Mike, we've got to have accountability and we will go through uh, the policing plan and the response and we'll do that in the proper order. That is what we want to see. I don't think that so, Minister. Oh, no, Mike, no, what we want to see no, no, is no, 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 never happening again. No, 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 we no, want no. to see the culprit no, no. genuinely arrested and put before no, the that's, court. That's, that's, that, that's, that's Our listeners would totally disagree with you about the order of things. That's not the proper order. Our listeners would say the proper order is you have a plan in place for such an eventuality. When something like this happens, you implement that plan. That's the proper order, Minister. And the plan was implemented. Was it quick enough? What Obviously plan? not. But that is the plan. But there's a very clear public order. This was just, this was just a few letters. This, this, this wasn't really uh, 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 sorry, an emergency. This was a this was a few nutters. This wasn't ISIS. This wasn't a spillover from an international football game. Uh, this wasn't the type of thing that police forces across international capitals deal with effectively when they occur. This was a relatively small amount of people who were allowed to run riot. Well, I'm sorry, Mike, I have to fundamentally disagree with you there. Yes, there was 400 absolute folks who took the streets, the heart of which was a coordinated far-right measure. But I'm sorry, I've been around the continent. I've seen riots consistently in cities like Paris, in Belgium and Madrid, literally just last week, on a scale similar and greater. So to say this is isolated and there was some sort of response that wasn't normal from the guards, I think it's wrong. What people want to see, Mike, quite clearly, they want to see that those who were involved in the riots, who smashed up our shops, who tried to take over our nation's capital, they want to see them brought to justice. We've already seen 40 arrests. We'll see dozens more arrests Dismal. in the coming days. D- dismal amount of arrests on the night that was in it. If no, you I'm, compa- sorry. I'm sorry, if you compare it to the Love Ulster riots in 2006, which were a much bigger event, over 100 people were arrested. Well, we have, Mike, well, firstly, Love Ulster was far greater in scale. We have 40 out of 400, so that's 10%, 10% were arrested on the night. But what we also have is 6,000 hours of CCTV footage, which is clear. And we now have the legislative tools to ensure that more arrests are happening. We're seeing those, Mike. We're seeing those arrests happening. There'll be even more through the week and they'll be going through those courts where they'll be facing sentences that have been extended a much longer. We will absolutely see that. We are seeing the shops get their windows are repaired, they're back open and they're ready to go for mm. business. We will see a dramatic response. At the moment, we have two public order units at all times in Dublin city centre that will remain throughout Christmas and beyond going forward. We have seen new powers and new uh, options open to the Garda to arrest and prosecute these absolute thugs. We will see that that, I believe, Mike, is what people absolutely want to see. Do you believe, Minister, that a policing plan will be put in place for a major incident if uh, there was to be a terrorist attack on Dublin, that there would be a plan uh, in terms of how to respond to it? Because it's clear the capital city is without such a plan at the moment. No, there is such a plan, Mike, and I think we have to be very careful with the language that we're not hyping up 
based spheres because what I have seen and any member of the Oireachtas Justice Committee has actually been uh, to the simulation exercises where on Garda Shea Connor mm. where the Defence Forces respond to any such terrorist incidents. This is a country that spent 30 or 40 years mm. on edge for terrorist incidents. So but I think the regard the, the cornered off, isolated, attacked uh, and put at grave risk on Thursday night. What if these fellows had had guns? Indeed, and that's a concern raised. But what we do have is we had a serious guard response. And of course, I am not for one instance saying that we don't need a full and thorough review. We've already had an initial review mm. of the policing plan. We will have the policing authority come in to do one. The opposition have asked for a further one based on, in, on an independent okay. source. We're more than happy to facilitate that, Mike, and that is constructive opposition from certain parties because yeah, we but, right but, but, but what it, happened and what is going, going to happen. Can, can, you blame me? can you blame me for wondering or asking you, what would happen uh, if some terrorist organisation decided to take it upon itself tonight or tomorrow night and drive cars at people while shooting at them at the same time? It's almost inconceivable, but it's not inconceivable. Uh, and that's why you'd expect there to be a planet in place. Do you, do, you, do you blame me for asking what would happen? Would there be a ring around and say, uh, any thoughts, lads? Or, 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 or do we have a plan? Well, firstly, Mike, I fundamentally believe that's your responsibility to ask me that. And I believe in that element of journalistic rigour and, indeed, democracy and freedom of speech. But I can assure you there is a plan. I've seen the plan. I've seen on Garda Shia the Defence Forces working with the emergency services in light of such an event happening. This has been a consistent thing long before uh, the sort of events that we saw. We've seen it in reaction to, as I said, our mm. own sad long history of terrorism to the rise of global terrorism, there's a very clear coordinated plan. What we saw on Thursday night was a riot involving 400 people that escalated quickly and that saw a response and saw that riot contained to an area of about 500 square metres and put down a riot that was put down within a couple of hours and led to no serious injuries, either of members of Angarda Shia no fatalities or indeed anything major. We did see on the night a couple of dozen arrests, we're going to see dozens more and we're most importantly going to see prosecution and incarcerations of those people who took it upon themselves to loot our nation's capital as well as those people who are central to the very small coordination of this uh, from the far right, the militant far right. Uh, and it's safe to go into Dublin now, Minister. I think that's what you wanted to say to people today. I want to reassure people that Dublin is, a sa- is safer now than it's ever been. We have a huge guard of presence. We have businesses that are dying um, for people to come in to keep their plans, to do their shopping, to see the pamphlet, to go for a pint, to have their Christmas party. Because if people don't do that, then might, those businesses mightn't be there again. Those workers mightn't have the job. And those experiences, the trip to see Santa or whatever it is, that all of us value so much in the amazing city of Dublin, it mightn't be there again if we don't go in and use it. All right, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that is Minister of State and Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it Well, uh, as I imagine you know if you listen to this programme regularly I'm pretty sure that you know that back in 1997 Brother Edmund Garvey was awarded uh, the freedom of Drogheda an honour bestowed on him because of uh, the work he he did as uh, the head of uh, the Christian Brothers Order at the time Uh, in uh, June of uh, this year that uh, honour was rescinded by members of Drogheda Borough Council It was a pretty controversial issue Uh, 
uh, and uh, indeed uh, there was much debate and discussion uh, about a legal strategy that the Christian brothers were using to thwart victims of child sexual abuse from seeking justice from the order. That strategy was introduced by and overseen by Brother Edmund Garby and that is why the councillors in Drogheda Borough decided to rescind the honour awarded to him back in 1997. There's a twist in this tale and the Irish Independent is reporting today that Brother Edmund Garvey is now suing Louth County Council. Earlier this morning I spoke to Damien O'Farrell who himself was a victim of sexual abuse as a boy at the hands of Christian brothers and he represents many other people who were abused like him and I asked him for his reaction to this story. Well I was surprised initially I suppose when I heard that I suppose that there's a positive aspect to it and, and so some negative aspects as well. On the positive side I suppose there's going to be more public awareness as regards the litigation strategy uh, whose introduction was presided over by Brother Garvey like back in 2019, Brother Garvey was written to by a government minister asking him to desist. I wrote to him myself in, in 2022, and the, the reply I received from him was quite extraordinary, in that he didn't seem to think that, that, there, was, that there was an issue. And the Lord Mayor of Dublin wrote to him, uh, wrote to the order there last year, and, and pri- there was a primetime programme on it. So this was a long, this was, this was a long time coming. And really... I suppose on the negative side, you know, this man and the order, I think they're perfectly entitled to seek a judicial review, but they, we have to see them as, as being a privileged group. There's been very few victims of, of child sexual abuse that would, that would be able to seek a judicial review, or I don't think there's any victim of, of a Christian brother sexual abuse that has ever appeared in front of a judge and got a judgment. You know, so yeah. so it's it's they're in a privileged position, but they really should be, I believe, should be looking towards the victims, be victims focused. I've experienced working with other victims of of Catholic um, and lay and, and religious um, abuse in Ireland, and the church really has moved. It has moved so far in the last ten years. It's much more victim focused now. Court cases they're they're ending in in maybe three to six months. Their settlements, but the brothers. They're really not in that sphere, and they, they are really um, they're outliers in that regard. And and this was really um, a societal message. It was symbolic justice, and mm. um, it was it was because pathways to justice for victims were blocked, and victims asked the councillors in Drogheda to send a societal message to Brother Garvey and the Order to look out for these victims and to do something. But that seems to have fallen on deaf ears. So I was just surprised, and it's it's mm. it's 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 disappointing that the victims they should really be getting together the order with the victims to see what where we can go forward instead of taking up court time but as i said they're perfectly entitled to that but it will it will highlight the litigation strategy so so that is a positive thing mm. Um, you know better than anyone, I suppose, Damien, what it means to get your day in court uh, and uh, the people who you represent know better again uh, because they want their day in court uh, and are being frustrated by this strategy Uh, but having said that if you've been wronged it is very important as you understand to get your day in court uh, and as you said Brother Garvey is entitled to take judicial action of this sort and if he feels aggrieved is he not right to do so? 
Yeah, he's that, that's his entitlement. But all these victims have have had their day in the in the criminal courts, and they've all achieved convictions. And, and Christian brothers and ex-Christian brothers were found guilty, and some of them are in jail at the moment. But in the civil courts, they haven't got there. Their pathways have been blocked. They're having to go after. Um, initially, Brother Garvey refused to put himself forward as a nominee. Um, Victims had to go to court to get court orders to find out the names of Christian brothers in order to give them summonses. So they haven't really got there. It's, it's, there's just been it's fence after fence after fence after fence, and it's going on for years. So they, they wouldn't be in a privileged position, the same as financially privileged as the order would be to, to go in to, to, to get a judicial review. Mm. Victims are having to rely on the Law Reform Commission to try and change the law to block the block. This is a legal loophole. It is legal, but it's a loophole. But it's so far from just, and it's so far from Christian or moral justice. Mm. And that's what I think our listeners have to, that's what we have to understand. These are child victims of heinous sexual abuses and crimes. I, I suppose one of uh, the surprising parts of this is uh, that we watched the freedom of uh, Drogheda being rescinded uh, from Brother Edmund Garvey in slow motion. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen out of the blue. Uh, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of debate. There was a lot of discussion. And indeed, there was a lot of criticism about the legal strategy that Brother Edmund Garvey introduced and oversaw, which thwarted victims of child sexual abuse from seeking justice or from gaining justice, accessing justice, as uh, the case may be. Uh, that all could have led to a very different situation uh, before the vote on whether to rescind the freedom or, or not. Because I don't think that would have happened, would it, uh, if the Christian brothers had decided to drop that legal strategy? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think people... This wasn't a personal attack on Brother Garvey. There was nothing... This is coming for four years and he'd been asked several times as leader. He was leader of, of his organisation. It wasn't a personal thing. There was no, there was never any accusation of impropriety against uh, Brother Garvey of a sexual nature or anything like that. Because these these are victims are all of, of sexual abuse crimes. But if if the order had stood back and just treated people in a, in, a, in a moral in a, in a Christian fashion, and mm. um, even the uh, former Chief Justice Frank Clark said, "Justice denied, justice denied, justice delayed is justice denied." And if this is what's happening here, mm. victims are being denied justice. And if this this could have been looked at, um, they were given ample opportunities. The order was to, uh, to step back, yeah. and and then the freedom. There'd be absolutely no way would that would that have been taken um, from, from Brother Garvey. Mm. And let's they not refused, let's, let's not forget um, what is at the heart of this. Christian brothers raped and abused little boys, very young little boys, yeah. innocent little boys. Those Christian brothers have gone to jail in some circumstances. They have been found guilty in court of raping and abusing innocent little boys. Uh, and those little boys are now men. Their lives have been destroyed. Uh, for the most part, uh, and indeed uh, they have not realised their opportunities in life, as I think you once put it uh, on the programme to us uh, previously. Uh, and now those men are trying to sue the order for the damage that was done to them to get justice for how their lives were destroyed. Uh, and this legal strategy prevents it. And now we have Brother Garvey, after being 
uh, I suppose, wrapped on the knuckles, if you like, by the county council, which now says it it doesn't want Drogheda to honour this man because of how little boys who are now men are being treated. Uh, and the upshot of all of that is that Brother Edmund Garvey feels aggrieved uh, and I, I'm sure if that's the way he feels, uh, that's not a, a nice way to feel uh, and that he is entitled to take legal action. Uh, so he is doing that and he's speaking to the council through his solicitors. Uh, has he spoken to you or any of the other victims? Well, I, I don't believe so. He, he's retired now. Um, and as I said, I wrote to him in 2022. Um, I, I gave him the courtesy. He actually thanked me in his reply for the courtesy that I gave him by flagging this. This, this is what I intended to do. This is this was the start. And he thanked for me for me for my courtesy. But he didn't agree that um, that the legal strategy was unjust for victims. Um, and it, 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 I don't want to get into his letter now, but it, it was actually extraordinary. Um, it, it may come out into the public awareness in the future, you know, but it was an extraordinary. Um, I, I would say it, it was, there was a type of there's a type of distorted thinking there. There's, there's a sort of a cut off between what really happened to these children and the effects that, it, that, that it's having from them now. They, these these people they want to get on with their lives. They want to go through the civil court in a reasonable amount of time, and that's a couple of years, not, not okay. six years, and five but, years, and four years. And they want to get into therapy, meaningful therapy. But they did they take a different approach recently, didn't they? I mean, since you were last on the programme with us, uh, Damien, the Christian Brothers did settle one case. Uh, have they dropped that strategy now, or what is their position? I'm not aware. I'm not aware that they have. I don't know the answer to that. But that, that man never got into court, though. Do you know what I mean? You get beaten around. When, you, when you've when you been dealing with this litigation strategy for four or five years, and then they throw you a bone then at the end of it, you know, you, you, you tend to take then what they're giving you. Like, they are in control. You know, that's what happens. You're, you're like you're gone 15 rounds with a, with a heavyweight champion boxer, and then at the end, then, they want to settle with you. And then... You know, there's a good chance that you, you'll probably listen to them and, and take what they give you, because you're not going to see the inside of a courtroom, and you're, you're not going to let it. You're not going to get to that the judge will make a decision. You know, but that hasn't happened as far as I know in the, in the state. That's Damien O'Farrell. Damien was speaking to me before we went on air this morning uh, about uh, this news that Brother Edmund Garvey is suing Louth County Council because of its decision to rescind the freedom of Drogheda from Garvey, which was bestowed on him back in 1997. Some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning, uh, one to do with businesses closing and jobs being lost. Uh, That's what we heard earlier from the Minister for Business, Richmond, somebody uh, it's not quite what they said but they say cock and bull uh, and you can uh, imagine the language that they used uh, instead of that but they say that's cock and bull there will be no shops closing over the riots uh, not buying that at all from the minister uh, somebody else uh, who wasn't uh, too impressed with what Minister Richmond was saying either says the only people who should be asked if they have any confidence in the Justice Minister or the Garda boss are the shopkeepers in the city centre. We all know what their answer would be. To hear some politicians defend the minister on air just shows how little knowledge they have of the views of the population of Dublin. The minister is useless and the Fine Gael TDs who have marched out to defend her uh, 
make themselves appear equally brainless, says Sean, who sent that to us. Thanks for your text. Sean, if you want to make a comment, our phone number is 0419832000. We'll have lots more on those riots uh, and indeed uh, the political reaction to them uh, in a short while. 0419832000, our telephone number, text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Uh, the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland has uh, published its annual statistics highlighting uh, the number of contacts uh, to the rape crisis centres across uh, the country over the course of the year. Dr. Cleena Sadler, Executive Director of the Rape Crisis Network, joins us now. Good morning to you, Cleena. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, This report uh, relates uh, to 2022 uh, and there was an astonishing amount of contact, some 10,000 people making contact at various rape crisis centres across uh, the country. Uh, Little good can be said about that uh, but are are you encouraged uh, by how there's been a drop uh, in the number of people who have made contact uh, compared to 2020, uh, there's a 20% decrease, I, I think. Uh, can you explain that for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we're both encouraged and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a good thing and, a, and not a good thing, as in the we had an extraordinary, clearly a uh, few years with the pandemic and 2020 saw an incredible spike and just a fluctuation in, in the type of demand, in how people needed us and in how we responded across the sector and, and the centres are really creative and innovative and, and just went all out in, during the pandemic and, and met, you know, significant you know, additional needs that arose. So so our numbers went up significantly in 2020 and 2021. So really, when we came to the 2022 statistics, we, we asked two questions. One is exactly that. You know, there was a drop from 2020, the high of 2020. But we went back to 2019 and said, OK, what, what's the level we're, we're settling to here? Because, of course, we've, if you like gone back into face-to-face counselling, gone back into these centres. You know, we're back into sort of, if you like, a more, a more, if I can use the word, normal mode. And so what's the level now? And actually the level now is 13% up on 2019 levels. So we are seeing, so while there's a drop from the highs mm. of the pandemic, mm. it's still an increase from 2020. From well, where we're in 2020. It's appalling to think uh, that 10,000 yeah. people sought help from rape crisis centres across uh, the country and the reason for that I think speaks for itself. Uh, But whilst the number of people who actually did contact you dropped, the demand for your services has increased. More people are looking for more help. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And as I say, we're you know we're really we're really doing that bit of, of looking back at the 2019 as our baseline here, um, to look at what that increase is looking like. So so you know we, the centres provided 10% more appointments in 2022 than they did in 2019. That speaks to just the expansion in capacity across the sector, and and just innovation and really pulling all the stops out to meet that increased need. Um, 7% increase on accompaniments as well. So you know that's that sort of year on year increase. We, we can we can predict that you know I think safely enough predict that that's going to keep on moving that way as a trend. Now there's positives to that. Part of that is that we're having more of these conversations. The you know in terms of 
how survivors feel safe and feel able and, and want to take that step and, and ring a rape crisis centre. That is changing and that's transform, transforming because we know, you know, we know from the Sexual Violence Survey of the CSO that 52% of women will have experienced some form of sexual violence. Um, that number, the number for men is... is um, 28%. So that's, that's actually the need out there. So really this, this 10,412 you know, calls into rape crisis centres in 2022 is the tip of the iceberg. So when our numbers increase, we can say there's, some, that there's probably something positive there yeah. in terms of the unmet need, you know, beginning to bubble to the surface and people beginning to feel able to, to reach out and, and you know, just just begin to explore the supports that are there for them. Okay. Uh, and the waiting times to get an appointment uh, to see a counsellor uh, are growing. Uh, yeah, they are. And, and again, this varies across the country. But, you know, this is, while there has been increases in funding from governments in the last uh, few years, I mean, we, you know, since the crash, we made a measure of this. You know, we had, we had massive, we were underfunded before the crash. We had massive cuts during the crash. None of that funding was reinstated or even began to be reinstated until, you know, about three years ago. We only reached the, our 28, 2008 levels of funding in 2018. You know, as a whole, on an average, and not necessarily in the northeast, because the northeast was always one of the most under-resourced um, areas in the country in terms of rape crisis. So, so really, we're starting from a low, and we've a long way to go yet before we're fully resourced and we're able to meet the need that's out there. Correct me if I, I'm wrong, uh, but uh, people react differently uh, to sexual uh, abuse. Uh, and it, yeah. it may affect one person much more than uh, another. Uh, some people uh, will get over it very quickly, uh, a bit like a physical assault. Uh, and other people will be deeply scarred and that scar will be with them for all of their lives. Uh, and some people will uh, keep that scar to themselves, if you like, uh, and hold it secret mm-hmm. and take many, many years before they disclose. This is something that uh, you've been looking at in some detail as well, isn't it? And mm-hmm. the patterns of disclosure. Yeah. And and what I would say is there's, there's, you know, there is no right or wrong way to respond to sexual violence and everyone does, does that in their own time. And, you know, the, you know, how you feel one day and, and how you feel that, you know, the next or, or next year, you know. So, so, you know, for a lot of survivors, this, you know, it emerges in, you know, in their throughout their lifetime in ways that are not necessarily predictable. But we can say, like, there are certain life stages that might, you know, make you make you reflective around this space and around the impact of, and you know, what because really every survivor is is incredibly innovative at building resilience and adapting, if you like, to what has been done to them and what that set told them about the world and the safe world out there and who they can trust. So so really there's times in your life when, when you know, that will emerge. So it's different for everyone and it's about everyone's individual life. So it's really, there's really, as I say, no right or wrong way or no point in your life where, where you know, you can say, I'm, mm. I'm over it because it's there. Um, but in terms of the disclosure pattern, this is, yeah, this is one of the ones we were looking at. Because for us, there is this is really about in, informing survivors and giving them options and giving them access. And if we have, so so the the point of disclosure is important because that's where survivors sort of can do that reaching out, can do that. I'd like to 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 see what's available for me, and I'd like some support, or not. And but but the but that none of that could happen until there's a point. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Disclosure. So what we've seen is that there's different patterns of disclosure. So really, children who have been abused at a very young age, um, we're seeing decades of a wait before they, they, if you like, emerge into a space where they can, where they, where the abuse is visible publicly or, or, or to where they choose to to make it visible in terms of reaching out to a service or to the guards or, or whomever. Um, so, and then if you look at adults, so so first I'll give you some numbers. Mm, sorry, mm, the mm, sure. so for the under thirteens, um, if you ask sort of like you know was was the the sexual abuse was the sexual violence known within a year was it disclosed within a year if we ask that across the age groups for the under 13 only only 24% of those abuses were known within a year of that abuse happening now that increases for the teenager uh, the 13 to 17 year old to 50% within one year it goes up again for the adults so what you're seeing there is, OK, we're not seeing 75% of the sexual violence against children. We're not seeing it within the first year of that of that incident, of that targeting of that child for abuse. So so where does that leave the child and what can we do to improve how we hear and we listen and we and we, we, we really pay attention to, to the children because we're missing 75% of it at the moment. Mm, OK, it's incredible to think of somebody carrying that trauma around for decades uh, and it is particularly the case as you say when children have been abused if they're 13 or younger uh, that relates uh, I think to Damien O'Farland uh, the boys who were abused by Christian brothers that he represents who are now men uh, we were discussing that earlier in the programme uh, and a development in that story but I think uh, what you've just said helps us to understand a little bit how that lies dormant in people for so long I've just run out of time Clean. I'm sorry to say uh, uh, but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much. That's uh, Dr. Cleena Sadler, who's uh, the Executive uh, Director of uh, the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland. Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it.
As you know, Childline is a 24-hour listening service for children and young people. It's run by the ISPCC and it is now launching its National Christmas Appeal. Fiona Jennings is Head of Policy and Public Affairs with the ISPCC and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Fiona. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Christmas should be the happiest time of the year for everybody, really, but it should most definitely be the happiest time of the year for all of the children in the world. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And Childline, I suppose, is the evidence of that. And the number of calls that you get over the Christmas period is always staggering and of real concern. Tell us a a little bit uh, about why children tend to call over Christmas, if you would, please. Yeah, good morning, Michael. So as you said, yeah, we're this week kicked off the launch of our annual Christmas appeal. So I suppose, um, you know, the ISPCC relies heavily on the generosity of the public to ensure that Childline, the National Listening Service, is kept open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day. And as you said, that includes the Christmas period and Christmas Day as well. Um, So for us every year, especially around Christmas time, you know, what we hear from children and young people is that not every child has that. Um, magical, that special, that, that that type of Christmas that we all think that children um, should have, but they don't have. So Thailand is there for them if they want to ring up and talk to us about whatever might be happening. So we have to remember that, you know, we know that children and young people in Ireland, that there are some of them who are there, they can be exploited for particular reasons, they're abused, often that can be in the home as well. And that just doesn't stop at Christmas. So that continues, you know, as it continues. And that includes at Christmas time as well. So it's really important that we have a service like Childline available to them where they can call up. It's anonymous. We don't judge them. And they can talk to us about what's going on for them. And we can them and help and support them in any way that we can. And some of those problems that the children have are really complicated in terms of trying to provide help over the phone uh, which is the service that you provide and there are other ways of course of contacting you but to to, to make uh, somebody who has made contact with you uh, safe it can be very difficult. Uh, you highlight the case of a little nine-year-old girl called Orla. Tell us about Orla if you would please. Yeah so I suppose what we've tried to do is try to um you know, give people an idea of just examples of some of the children that do call us. So as you said, uh, one of our volunteers, Kira, um, she spoke a couple of times to a girl named Orla. So Orla was ringing us and telling us about how scared she was of, as who she described, the monster who came into her bedroom at night. Um, and this person that she was describing as the monster, so they should have been one of the most trusted people in her life. Um, but Orla, who was um, nine years of age, was actually being sexually abused by this person who happened to be a member of her family. Um, so we're choosing to highlight the stories like Orla this Christmas as well mm. to really help, us help people understand, as I said at the start, you know, that not all children do have the perfect Christmas that they so deserve. Yeah. And that sometimes as well, when we think of, you know, child sexual abuse, um, not that many of us do think of it, which is thankful as well, but it's not something that has been confined to our history books. It very much is an issue of the present day. And often as well, where children and young people are 
you know, supposed to be protected, supposed to be the safest in their own home, that's often where they can be at their most vulnerable as well. And at nine years of age, uh, you'd uh, imagine uh, that Orla may have been confused or didn't understand what was happening to her or have the language to describe uh, was happening to her, although monster seems a very appropriate word if she was being sexually abused. There was a, another little girl uh, who contacted Childline. Tell us about Jess, if you would. Yeah, so Jess as well it was somebody who contacted us and spoke to one of our volunteers. And she was telling us about how she was also being abused at home. And Jess had been calling Childline for some time. And I guess through, I suppose, how Tonline works, it is a listening service. So it is there to listen to children and young people. And it will always take them at their own pace and it will never rush them into, you know, telling us anything or indeed trying to make a decision. So I suppose through that, um, Jess was able to, I suppose, talk to the volunteers. and She built up courage um, and, I suppose, an idea as to what she actually wanted to do. But also as well, I suppose, or, or Jess wasn't just thinking about herself. She was also thinking about her own siblings that were in the home as well and trying to protect them against what was happening to her. But I suppose, as you said, Michael, often, mm. you know, we do hear from children and young people, you know, they don't use words like sexual abuse or grooming or, you know, or anything like that. They don't have, often they don't know what is happening to them and they certainly don't have... The, the adult vocabulary, if you want, that we're more accustomed to um, when we hear about how um, these these things are described. So that's a big thing, is that, you know, they don't generally know what is happening to them, but they know it's not right and it doesn't make them feel well. I'm sure many of our listeners will be brokenhearted to hear what has happened to those two little girls. It really is disturbing to think uh, that such small, little, innocent, young people are being sexually uh, abused like that. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people will be thinking about both Orla and Jess after what you've told us they've said to you through Childline uh, about their experiences. But they're not alone. They are not unique. And this really is the tragedy of the story because you're getting 26 similar calls a week or 100 calls from children reporting sexual abuse on a monthly basis. Yeah, so we have that level of, of contacts that are coming into us. And I suppose as well, the Central Statistics Office carried out, um, which was long overdue, carried out a sexual violence survey um, that was released earlier on this year as well. And that showed the same, um, I suppose it was bringing up the same type of issues as well, how that that experiences of child sexual abuse, you know, they have not gone away. And also as well, I think one of the the statistics from that survey was around um, the huge high percentage of victims who actually knew their perpetrator. Um, So this really is an issue of today as well. It's an issue that we're not talking enough about. Um, It is uncomfortable to talk about it, but if it's uncomfortable for us to talk about it, we have to imagine then with what must it be like for the child or young person who has to actually go through it. Mm. Well, that's why Childline is there. Unfortunately, there is the need for Childline uh, and it is a, a great need uh, because you're taking 100 calls a, a month from children who are reporting 
child sexual abuse to you uh, but uh, that's just a, a portion of uh, the story because children are contacting you for all sorts of reasons and uh, for the most part they are things that shouldn't be happening in the lives of the youngest most precious people in our country uh, you need funding to do that and that's why you're with us today to appeal to our listeners we do. We're, we're appealing today for uh, members of the public to, I suppose, just to continue to support us, I guess, as well, in terms of making the Childline service available um, and to keep it open, as I said, like that it is there every day and every hour of every day for children and young people. And, you know, every donation, no matter how small it is, it really does make a difference. Um, and not alone like, are we providing the Childline service as well, but I suppose we're also trying to work proactively in trying to bring about solutions as well that will protect children from um, being exploited and being abused as well. So any support and the continuing support is really appreciated, um, I suppose, at this time of year more so than ever as well. Okay, and I, I know that uh, you're working on such programmes with TU Dublin at the moment uh, on a, a programme that hopes to end violence uh, against children, uh, which I, I think any decent person would uh, aspire to. Uh, it's just unfortunate that that is a, an aspiration uh, as we speak, Fiona. Yeah, so I suppose we are. We, we are um, we're very excited and uh, indeed privileged to be associated with um, TU Dublin in terms of the research projects that we have happening at the moment. Um, so it's brilliant to bring, I suppose, the expertise of the ISPCC and the voice of the children and young people that we hear from and to bring that together then with the expertise of the people and the team that we're working with um, at TU Dublin and to really try and work together. So to bring together, as I said, you know, that, those lived experiences along with the technical expertise um, that um, TU Dublin has to bring them together and to try to develop solutions as well to, to prevent and certainly to try to reduce the harm um, from child sexual abuse and ex- sexual exploitation. But if I could just say one mm-hmm. thing, um, Michael, just to anybody that is listening and if they do want to donate, mm-hmm. they can go onto our ISPCC website and you'll see the Christmas appeal there. And as I said again, um, you know, any support that we get to continue to do the work that we do um, is really appreciated. Absolutely. And it's ispcc.ie and you'll see the Christmas Appeal section uh, on the website. Fiona, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Fiona Jennings is Head of Policy and Public Affairs with the ISPCC. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. The 16 days of activism against gender-based violent campaign began this weekend on November the 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. It runs until the 10th of December, Human Rights Day. This campaign calls for the prevention and elimination of violence against women and girls. Everyone has the right to be free of violence. That's Fianna Fáil TD, Jennifer Monane O'Connor speaking in the Dáil yesterday. And I'm asking everyone, if you can, to light a candle for Unite on on Friday the 1st of December and the 8th of December in solidarity for those affected by DVA. 
indeed, and uh, to support those who've uh, been affected by domestic violence, uh, but uh, not just light a a candle, support those who work with uh, those victims of domestic violence, predominantly women, but not just women. Their children are often at the heart of domestic violence and uh, there's a special uh, scheme which has uh, been developed at Mead Women's Refuge called Where I'm At. Let's speak to Katie Carey, who's the children's team leader at Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services and uh, is responsible for running the Where I'm At scheme. A very good morning to you, Katie. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Your programme has been endorsed uh, by Trinity College and indeed by the children's ombudsman, Niall Mundoon. Perhaps you tell us a little bit about how you make it easier for children to cope when they find themselves in this most undesirable situation where they and their mother have had to move out of their home and flee for their safety. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Yes, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, yeah, we launched the Where I'm At um, evaluation um, last week on World Children's Day and I suppose what that project is really about is supporting that transition for children and young people who come into our service with their mum for emergency refuge accommodation. Um, we know that domestic violence is obviously a hugely traumatic experience and our job here is to make sure that children and young people are supported by ensuring that they have access to things like toys and um, clothes and different things like that when they come in. And we were delighted on the day to have the Ombudsman for Children join us. And I think it just really highlighted um, the work for us as well. And I suppose the the model of approach that we take is a rights-based approach. And it's underlined by play for children. And it's really, I suppose, children are coming in. They're coming into a new environment. They're coming into an environment that, you know, there's different faces, there's different people, there's different families in it. And they're leaving behind everything that they know that keeps them safe at home, their toys, their belongings. And it's just about supporting that transition for children to make sure that we're really gentle in the approach we take. That we're really sensitive to the fact that children, young people, you know, are a victim of domestic violence in their own right. And I suppose for us as a service, we want to ensure that they have access to a support worker. And what that support worker does is to, you know, make sure that they have a support plan, that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach here. It's about individualised support for children and young people. So Mm. it's about ensuring that, you know, their their supports here are based around their needs and what they... The, um, what they need at that moment, you know, and that's where the name, I suppose, for the Where I'm At project came from. It's about meeting children, young people, where they're at, coming into our service and putting the support in around that. Well, when, um, they, when they come into your service, uh, they're not at a, a very good place, are they? And that's yeah. why you're providing one-to-one support for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a, a focus on safety, security is so important to all children, but when you've had to leave your home and leave everything behind you, uh, it must be very difficult to reassure them, or is it? It, it is. It's a, it's a, it is a difficult place for children when they come in. I suppose, you know, we kind of think of refuge as their safe place, which it absolutely is. Um, and we put the support in around to ensure that safety. But we have to remember that for children and young people experiencing domestic violence at home, they learn how to keep themselves safe at home. So we're removing them from that. Um, and it's about that, as I said, that gentle approach at the beginning to kind of let them know they're safe here mm. and kind of to reassure those feelings for them. 
Um, and it's all done through the, the work of the children's support worker and um, through play, I suppose, is what children, you know, they learn yeah. by doing. So it's about play and kind of making sure they have access to play and access to a space to play in um, and being really, I suppose, the team here trained to kind of be trauma-informed and to work from a place of kind of, of being aware of, you know, the trauma that children have gone through mm. um, but being really sensitive to that as well in the approach and kind of taking it at their pace um, and making sure that the activities are in response to what their interests are, you know, um, yeah. and kind of building on that as well with them. Right, yeah, and we often talk about domestic violence uh, and children are quite often forgotten about. The Children's Ombudsman said that your programme highlights that children are also victims of domestic abuse. Uh, they may not have been struck or whatever the uh, abuse was, but they are victims when... Uh, they have to uh, leave everything behind them uh, uh, and move to a, a refuge. Uh, but he, he also went on to say that this marries well, the programme that you have marries well with the commitments made by the government because we do talk about domestic mm-hmm. violence and recognising those uh, who are victims of it. In, in this case, it's the children uh, and in a way that they can relate to, which, as you say, is through play. Uh, there's three stages uh, to your programme, are there? Yeah, there are. There are. So it's about, um, I suppose, the first piece is supporting that transition in and kind of making sure that their basic needs are met when they come into the programme. Um, and then the, the second stage is around building the support around them. Um, so, you know, developing those one-to-one sessions for them on their needs. And that's with meeting with mum as well and hearing from mum what the experience being at home and kind of where she feels the children need support as well. Um, but also within that, supporting mum with um, her own pieces around maybe parenting or, you know, how to talk to her child about what's going on or where they are at the moment. And then I suppose the final stage of that is supporting the transition out of refuge. So that means kind of ensuring that children are having a piece of closure here that, you know, there's work done um, a few weeks before children are are leaving refuge around making sure that they're aware that they're moving on, you know, and they get a chance to kind of close their time here with their support worker because they build up such a lovely relationship with that person. Um, so we're really gentle on that piece as well, you know, and kind of preparing them for the move on piece. Sure, but I yeah. suppose one of the, the great things with our children's programme here is that we do have um, a community aspect to our programme. So it means children that leave refuge can come back in for further support after that. So mm. they can be supported in the recovery after refuge as well, yeah. which I think is really important. And it's something that we would love to see um being carried out across GV services um, in the country, do you know that there is that wraparound piece and model? Mm. Um, because there are some services in the country that don't have access to children's support workers. Um, and I suppose last at the launch, it was about kind of naming that and kind of trying to kind of see how we can, you know, build that capacity across mm. our services. Um, and there are some organisations across the country that are doing fantastic work with children as well. Um, so try and highlight this. Because I suppose, and as you said, Michael there, you know, the new zero tolerance strategy, sorry, did name children as victims, you know, and I think that's a huge moment for us here. Um, and it's to really kind of build on the support that we can provide for children and young people who are experiencing such traumatic um, uh things at home, you know, and mm. it's about giving them that space to, to process it and to recover from it as well. Well, it must be terribly traumatic and I imagine it's an experience that most of the children will take with them 
through their lives for all of their lives. Uh, and that's why the researchers uh, at Trinity College have been uh, recommending that this would be extended to, to each refuge that there is oh. in the country. Um, h- h- how many children are you supporting at the moment, Katie? I think so far, um, up until maybe October, November, Michael, we've had maybe 120 children coming into the service. Um, and it's a, it's a big increase on last year. Mm. Um, and I suppose there is this one children's support worker here that kind of works with those children individually. Um, so it is, it's a huge piece of work, but it's a really, I suppose we're really strong on the piece of work that we've arrived here. And, um, you know, the refuge team and the children's team work really well to support the family as a whole. It's not that people, that the um, members of the family are treated individually. It's that we're looking at it as a family and kind of how to support the family um, through what has gone on and kind of through the transition um, and the journey in refuge as well. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's a, we've definitely seen an increase this year with our numbers. Mm. It's shocking. Um, yeah. le- le- less than a month out from Christmas uh, to think that uh, you're supporting so many children. Uh, and there's kind mm. of uh, been an unintentional theme to the programme today um, with uh, various different problems that children are, are facing living in uh, this country. I think people will be very struck by what you're saying. 100 to 120 children, uh, more or less uh, at the moment, that uh, you're supporting. Uh, and indeed, uh, I, I'm sure that people will light a, a candle on Friday and that they will do what they can help to, to help uh, LMFM supporting the 16 Days campaign. Uh, and there's ways of donating through LMFM website and so on but I I know people are very good Katie and that they uh, will always support the work that you're doing. Yeah definitely and it's just great to have this campaign that we can raise the awareness you know over these 16 days and as you said coming up to Christmas it's a particularly difficult time for families where you know decisions are being made whether refuge is needed or not Um, so it's just to make sure that you know women out there can reach out to us you know and we have a free phone Helpline number as well, which is 1800 46 46 46. You know, we're here to listen and we're here to help um, and chat through options that are there for families experiencing domestic violence. Absolutely. Katie, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Just to repeat that number, it's 1800-46-46-46. Katie Carey is the children's team leader at Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Uh, later today, the Shannon will debate uh, miscarriage and fertility leave, which would result in women uh, being entitled to up to 20 days paid leave uh, for early pregnancy loss and up to 10 days for fertility treatment. Uh, It's legislation uh, which is being proposed uh, by Marie Sherlock, Labour Party spokesperson on workers' rights. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us uh, on uh, the programme today. Uh, This is is something that I think most women will be able to identify with, but it's something that is often unspoken about, isn't it? Yeah, good morning, Michael. Good morning to all your listeners. So, look, we're, um, I suppose, the Liberal Party brought forward this legislation in 2021 and uh, and we're, we're very pleased that we'll be able to move this legislation through the remaining stages of the Shannad today. Um, I think to, uh, to indeed, many women, uh, to many of your listeners, and indeed men as well, um, can relate to the situation where 
uh, going through an early um, uh, miscarriage or having to go through fertility treatment. While it is first and foremost a health issue, of course, it's also a workplace issue because uh, particularly those in, in, in jobs where they don't have flexibility. So if you're a teacher, you're a healthcare professional, you're in a retail role or in any customer facing role where, you know, you have fixed hours, you can't drop tools and disappear for two or three hours, then um, that, that, then certainly that uh, that need for workplace flexibility and accommodation, you know, leave when, when it matters most um, for women and indeed couples going through fertility treatment and, and, and early miscarriage is, is really important. And, and, and so we very much hope that once it goes through the Shannon today, that the government will take this up in the new year in the Dáil. Yeah, quite often women are, are mourning, aren't they, and at work. Yeah, and look, and I think, you know, for anybody who's gone through early miscarriage knows that there's both a physical and a psychological impact. Um, I think the other thing is as well with regards to fertility leave, anybody who's, or fertility treatment, anybody who go, has gone through it will tell you that it's not a once-off procedure. You can't get you don't choose your date and unfortunately your body decides that and there are multiple scans and, 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 and parts to the, the overall process which involve many trips back and forth to the clinic and so you know it's important to recognise that uh, and also what a woman goes through when she goes through early miscarriage uh, and to ensure that we, that we have an accommodation in the workplace again you know the, 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 the hundreds of women who've contacted us over the, over, over the last number of years keep on saying to us you know we're not sick um, but we do need some sort of accommodation in the workplace. And, you know, we're hugely grateful to the INTO, the National Teachers Organization, because they it was, it was really them and their work in terms of with their members and the survey they undertook amongst their members, which really highlighted to us that something needed to be done to put in place a proper leave for all workers going through these experiences. How have employers responded? Well, look, I, I, you know, I, I think there will be an obvious um, a kind of concern from employers is this yet another, you know, a workplace leave. But we have to put in context here that there's well over two million people at work. The number of people uh, going through, um, uh, you know, fertility treatment or early miscarriage in the grand scheme of things is going to be quite small. It's not something that happens every day of the week. Um, And so, you know, it's going to be a small number of workers involved here. But what's important is for those small number of workers, it's hugely important to them that the workplace conditions are right. And, And so I suppose we passionately believe that, you know, these supports need to be put in place. To be fair, we, we, Minister Roderick O'Gorman has shown an interest in, 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 in our bill. He has commissioned research um, by the UCC um, uh, Pregnancy mm. Loss uh, Research Group and, and, and actually they were presenting to, uh, to ourselves and to other ROCSIS members yesterday and we hope to see that research published over the coming weeks because I think that research is very important in, 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 in shining a light to the workplace experience of those going through early miscarriage. Now, you know, while the Minister is enthused by providing leave for early miscarriage, uh, we haven't heard anything positive yet on the fertility leave. And I think to any of your listeners who've gone through fertility treatment will know, um, you know, that, that, that there's also a huge need to recognise that in the workplace. But I think to employers, you know, I have to assure them that the only leave that any worker will take in a year is annual leave. Every other type of leave, whether it's sick leave, domestic violence leave, or the leave we're talking about here is only in the if um, you know, you know, it only falls into the category of uh, if this is a need, you know, and and it, and it won't happen. To, it, it won't be a requirement of every worker mm. in the workplace. Would it be twenty year, twenty days a year, every year? 
Uh, so that is what we have provided for. And I think, again, I'd have to put in context, like the number of people who would ever require, um, you know, that uh, I think again, oh, I know. Very small, yeah, yeah, no, you know? I know. But some people believe that their sick days are holidays, and they take all their holidays, uh, and that means that well, uh, they take, you know, whatever it is they're entitled to, yeah, and sick leave off every year, whether they're sick or not, and they may do the I, same with something like this. Yeah, and it's and it's and actually, mm. you've asked a very fair question, mm. and we have within our bill the need for certification. So somebody will have to go. You know, if if you if you go to, if you experience this, you have to go to a doctor mm-hmm. and get that 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 letter from the doctor setting out mm. what's happened. So again, does, does you know, it happen elsewhere? Uh, does uh, is paid leave like this, uh, or um, I presume uh, you don't mind me uh, referring to it as paid leave? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, for, for miscarriage or or uh, for fertility treatment. Uh, do other countries allow for that? They, well, they do. And I suppose what has been really interesting from the research by the Pregnancy Loss Research Group in UCC is that while we know that New Zealand has recently introduced uh, workplace leave for those going through early miscarriage, California is as well, India has had it for a while, we know that there's actually quite a large number of what we might call low and middle income countries, so not necessarily countries in, within Europe or some of yeah. those advanced mm-hmm. countries, but, 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 but countries where there would be a lot of women working, um, uh, uh, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia and in South America, mm. who've had miscarriage leave for many, many years. Okay, but, but not um, fertility so, leave, is it? And, and fertility leave is certainly something that would be new. But we mm, believe that sure. like, okay. there's no reason why we shouldn't actually be leading the rest of the world in this space. Because, okay. again, I think the experience of women in Ireland is, is, is hurting mm. replication in many other countries. Okay, very good. We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Marie Sherlock. Now, before we leave you, let me give you some more of the comments that have come to us. Tom and Navin saying, Michael, if there was ever any doubt about Helen McEntee resigning, it's crystal clear that now her position is untenable and that's for sure. Uh, As Gary Gannon said, a drunk lying on the street outside the same school who urinated on himself at 2.45 when the already traumatised kids were coming out. No Garda. There is no accountability in this country. She has to step down, says Tom. Paddy Duffy says a culture has emerged in the Garda where they're afraid to protect themselves for fear of discipline and sanction. So how the hell can they be expected to protect the public? This has come about since Drew Harris became commissioner he badly needs to resign and immediately so says Paddy for the sake of the Gardaí he's not a leader he's a box ticker Uh, Jackie Taff was in touch with us as well and she says I just want to mention how our decisions and choices can reflect and give some insight into where as individuals our mindsets might be the mindset of an individual who makes decisions or choices that can block or delay just for individuals who have become uh, who have proven instances of uh, injustice and child sexual abuse in court may be categorised as morally and ethically troubling. The mindset reflects a callous indifference to the suffering of victims and survivors and sadly a willingness to undermine the legal system's effort to address and rectify such heinous acts, says Jackie. That's all we've time for for today. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, Brian Farrelly Research, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwin. We'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.